All right. Now I got to be careful what I say. Anything you say can and will be used against you anywhere, whether it's true or not. Super slow. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 422 is recorded live October 10th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Joseph coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where buoys are starting to find their way coming back in. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Doing very well. Got my window open, get some breeze through here. I've had a great last three days of blue skies. Okay. That means it's going to turn out and rain for the whole weekend. Is that, is that what the, the what happens? Well, we get that. You know what they say. You know what follows the thunderstorms on the weekend is Monday. That's when you have your best days when you go back to work. Monday, yeah. Well, I, I remember years ago somebody saying that the reason we had that over here was because all the highway driving in Chicago, by the time it made it across the lake and built up, that was almost like a uh, seeding for storms. Because I think there was one year where Monday through Friday, almost every week was sunny and beautiful, and it rained every weekend. Oh, yeah. And that's what somebody told me. All related to those darn cars, this highway. Well, we got a full chat room. I mean, we can fit some more in, but excellent. I'd like to thank everybody who's come and joined us. We have Brandon and Eric and Karen and Derek all in there. So uh, pretty good turnout. Get, get us started with the show. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article is a follow-up. A cause of the deadly California scuba diving boat fire is still a mystery. Investigators completed a two-week examination of the charred wreckage of the scuba diving boat. They could not determine what ignited the fire that killed 34 people off the southern California coast, a law enforcement official said Friday. The boat named Conception was anchored just off Santa Cruz Island when it caught fire and sank early on September 2nd. It was raised and brought to uh, port, and I'm going to mispronounce this name, of course. Was that Hunain, a naval base northwest of Los Angeles, where specially trained teams from the FBI, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives tried to figure out what sparked a blaze. They completed their work there without finding a cause, but investigation will continue, said the official, who was not authorized to release information publicly and spoke to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity i'm just questioning real quick yep is that a whistleblower you're not mm-hmm. authorized to release the information but you do it anyway as long as they don't tell anybody who to, who said it is that the same thing as whistleblower i think what a lot of this is <laughs> my, i think most things where it's leak or anonymous is are actually known by the groups it's just that they want to like like the fbi or whoever He's, he was not the official person to say, but his boss said, go out there and tell them, otherwise people are going to drive us nuts. So it's, it's almost like a test flight. If, something, <laughs> if, if something's wrong, then they'll disavow all knowledge and throw the guy under the bus. But if it's fine, then everybody's happy. 
So I, I, I was I, just curious. I'm just sorry about that. I just I, I, no, I hear you. I I see that. <laughs> like uh, we we play around with terminology and things changes whose fault or or not. But uh, they completed their work there without finding a cause. But the investigations will continue. Said the official. A piece of the boat had been sent on to labs for additional testing. Investigators are pouring through hundreds of documents seized from the boat's operator. Truth Aquatics, the official said, some parts of the boat's washed away when it submerged. You know, so is this the full employment for investigators where they, like, they seize everything? Like, the boat operator is going to document that we suck and that we screwed up? I don't, you know, I guess you got to look everywhere, but... uh. I'm just curious how the, you know, tobacco and firearms, how did they get involved in it? Uh, aren't they the ones who kind of get brought in if they think that there could be foul play involving fire or explosives? Well, wouldn't you think the FBI would look first and then say, well, can't figure it out. Let's call somebody else in. I'm just, it just seems odd. Yeah, I I think it might just be a who's got the the people with the, expertise in that particular area i don't know if it's necessarily a jurisdiction jurisdiction thing but the fbi might not have the uh fire investigation uh people so they brought them in or everybody wants to be in a high profile case I don't yeah. know. they said we don't put a time limit on it it all depends on the science and the evidence the fritzer family owners of conception said in a statement friday uh that the primary Insight is unfortunate. For the sake of victims or loved ones in the crew, Gene Fritzler and his family want answers. It has become Gene's personal mission that this never happens in the passenger boat industry again, according to a statement made through the family's attorney. Glenn is investigating into additional independent investigation efforts to do everything he can to shed more light on what started the fire. The cause ultimately will be ruled an accident incendiary, meaning it was deliberately set or undetermined. Authorities have said there's no indication the fire was arson. In the meantime, the Coast Guard, FBI, U.S. Attorney's Office, Los Angeles are leading a criminal probe, and the National Transportation Safety Board is investigating safety issues. Coast Guard rules require a roving night watch, but investigators say the captain and four crew members were asleep at the upper deck. The fire broke out at 3 a.m. and quickly slept, slept, swept through the boat. The 33 passengers of deckhand sleeping below deck during a three-day scuba diving excursion were trapped and died. Crew members tried to rescue the people that were driven back by the flames, abandoned ship, the investigators have said. And then they go on and not a whole lot of meat beyond what we already heard. Um, it, it's a tra- tragedy, and hopefully we'll come up with something, you know, learn from it. Um, I think it just shows how hot some of these fires can get quickly. Well, I also think it's interesting that what, Ryan Sims, the cook on the boat, broke his leg getting out, claimed in a separate lawsuit he's already filed that the boat was unseaworthy and operated in an unsafe manner. So if he's claiming that in a lawsuit, it would be quite interesting to see what specifically he said was unseaworthy and how was it operated in an unsafe manner, which yeah. could then lead to other information on the fire. Right. So I wonder why we don't hear that part. Yeah. Well, could do you, and I'm completely speculating, but could you think that maybe he's trying to, maybe he feels like he could be blamed for something. So if by taking this position, he might get uh, a deal. Well, and then following up here, it says Coast Guard records show Conception passed its two most 
recent inspections with no safety violations. So if the boat was unseaworthy, I would hope that the Coast Guard would have shown that. Now, operating in an unsafe manner, Coast Guard would have no clue about that one. But by the same token, if it was, did he file a complaint at the time? Which I am willing to bet you dollars to donuts. He did not. No, because he, yeah. Because there'd be a record, so, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, so that's why that's why I was wondering if maybe there was something that he had seen or it's something that's maybe not necessarily, cr- uh, you know, it's more crew-based than uh, boat-based, if that's possible, where, uh, you know, you, you're supposed to be doing certain activities and maybe he didn't do what they were or somebody didn't do what they were. Yeah. But, of course, it's interesting. We're, we're all speculating. Well, yeah. Did you yeah. go through and look at the comments from the people? <laughs> oh God! Some, well, those some of them are part. not very nice. Some of them are not very nice. On the internet, there's some not nice people. Oh, luckily, I am being filtered from that because my connection timed out. <laughs> so it says we detected some connectivity issues. Therefore, we are unable to load con- conversation. Ah. So, uh, uh, but I. I I believe you are probably right that there is some people maybe being a little snarky, possibly. To say the least. Still interesting. Everybody's an expert. Yeah. Well, everybody has an opinion. Well, the thing that struck me is like, this is the stuff you read about in foreign countries where they don't have any rules, where you have an accident that kills gross negligence. Gross negligence. But in the U.S., it's rare, especially on this size of boat, to to have that level of a fatality. I was shocked when I, I first read the story. You know, three people. Well, you, I mean, well, tragic. You'd go, well, you know, I can understand that happened, but thirty-four. First right. thing I was thinking is, how big is this boat? It's got to be big. Right, and the other one that still is has not been answered is Firewatch. I do believe on that type of craft, there has to be someone awake 24 hours a day for that particular purpose it's called mm-hmm. firewatch and yeah it, again something happened really really quick yeah well then how about this one and uh, you ever, you ever, I, I got a little pop-up yeah we're not third world <laughs> oh derek it's not like it is in a third world yeah, country yeah that's what he was saying yeah and karen says especially in california um <laughs> uh, so, so Mac, is, have, have you uh, run into any similar experiences in a kayak? Great white shark bite in the scuba diver's kayak and only leaves two teeth behind. Uh, Seems like you lost more than that. Whoa, did you see the size yeah. of that tooth? That's what I was saying. Yeah, that's a, that's, those are pretty good. Yeah, that's a fresh, nice white one. That ought to sell good. Put that around your neck. Yeah, yeah I, that's, I'd be keeping that wearing it. I mean... That's that's a survival thing, and, and for those who don't know, uh, we're talking about uh, a great white shark chomped into the scuba diver's kayak off Catalina Island in Southern California last weekend. Danny McDaniel, boy, it almost sounds like a joke name there, told Los Angeles Times he felt something move his kayak on Saturday. At first, he thought it was his friend in another kayak bumping into him. But then he realized it was a shark's head. I saw the snout of the water over the back of the kayak. Then I followed the snout up, and there was a giant, immense body off to the right side of the boat. The shark turned the kayak 180 degrees, bit into it, and swam away. The teeth 
are each two inches long, which suggests the shark was about 19 feet long, the Times reported. McDaniel, a veteran diver, said he swum with sharks before, but has never encountered one this big. I just were, put the, the pictures on, on the uh, site here. Yeah, you put it there in Discord, so all of yeah. those who uh, uh, are listening live in the chat room can follow along. Um, those are pretty freaking healthy. <laughs> yes. That would hurt. That would hurt. I think yeah. I, that's bigger than any of the teeth we found down there in, in Charleston. <laughs> Complete, yes. Yeah, and those nice are, those shiny. Are excellent condition. Yeah. He was, he was brushing his teeth. Yeah. Uh, they said, this is the new normal. We have to share the ocean with them. We should always be thinking there may be sharks here, but it doesn't necessarily mean we should be scared. Lowe said great white sharks are typically shy, but come closer when they're curious. Oh, wow, that's a beautiful photo you put there, Mac. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I know that if I lived by the, I mean, I like to, to play in the water. When I was wow. on Florida a couple of years ago, I went to the shark beach to look for teeth. But when you think about it, there's a sort of pale-looking old guy with a half a suit on in the shallows flipping around. And then later I get to one of the beaches, one of the, the wharfs, and I ask, what are the guys fishing for? And when they say freaking hammerheads, it's like, excuse me? Nobody oh, told me they were hammerheads. You know, he, and I'm out there in five foot of water looking for teeth, and they're hammerheads? I don't think so. Wow. They come in that close intentionally? Well, these guys. Them in? <laughs> they were on the on that dock thing, the pier, and they were not way out there in the water, and that's what they were fishing for. Yeah. Well, what they probably do is wait for the nice, tasty uh, uh, divers and beachcombers to enter the water, and then they, yeah, you know, that's kind of their chum. <laughs> they like that that pale skin, white, yeah. they use fresh white meat. Yes, yeah, it's, it's right in it's there. Like, it's like iridescent. It just calls to them. Yeah. But, wow, I'm glad they're okay. And it, it, wow, that, is, that is amazing. Another thing that will not happen in Lake Michigan. <laughs> this is a good, interesting article, but did you read the comments again? No, I, I got the same message. It, they wouldn't come up. Sharks only bite when you touch their private parts. The great and wise orca. <laughs> yeah. Not many people under the age of 50 will get this, but I bet the shark was singing. Why can't we just be friends? The shark must have been on a low kayak diet. Shy is taking a bite yeah. to see if you taste good. Yeah, just a little nibble. Would you go back out in that same area? Uh, I, I would. It comes under that thinking that maybe I shouldn't press my luck. 19 feet. That's bigger than my car. So if, if he was like biting on the kayak, nibbling it a little bit, do you think he's thinking next time that, you know, maybe I should try and avoid the hard outer shell? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You get that, the tender stuff on the inside. The tender stuff. Jeez. Well, here we've got a Southern Scuba Club looks to expand scuba diving interest in Statesboro campus. I like this article because it was showing that uh, sometimes we feel like diving is on the downturn. But uh, with the right social activities and encouragement and involvement, you can get people interested. Um, William Hicks, a Southern Scuba Club president, 
said that access and opportunity scuba diving was the goal and that the Southern Scuba Diving Club was like a family to him. We provide access to diving equipment, opportunities, training, and guidance outside courses offered on or off campus. This club has helped me grow as a leader and as a diver, and I've met some of my best friends through the club. We are all just a big family. Hicks said he's been there since the beginning. I've been part of Southern Scuba Divers since the beginning. It basically started as just a few friends getting together and diving, and now we are 53 members strong. Sarah Wright, head of community outreach, said that she could not imagine college without Southern Scuba Club. Anyone who loves the ocean is interested in learning more about becoming a certified diver should join the Southern Scuba Divers, Wright said. The scuba community is unlike anything I've ever experienced before, and I could not imagine my college experience without them. The Southern Scuba Club helped me in the Tybee Island Beach cleanup, picking up about 9,000 pieces of individual trash. They also participate in the Soda Tab Collection Drive, which is a charity drive for the Ronald McDonald House that begins the next few weeks and goes into spring 2020 semester. Kaylee Dupree, a Southern Scuba Club officer in several trips, including two to Jenny Springs in Northern Florida, community service endeavors, and guest speaker at meetings are part of the Southern Scuba Club's future plans. Anyone can join and participate. However, according to Hicks, Southern Scuba Diving does require you to have a scuba certification to go on most trips, but non-certified members can come on trips if snorkeling is allowed at the trip location. And then they give you some contact information and how to get a hold of them. I think when you've got one, especially on campus, you'll have good interest if they can provide all the equipment like we're talking about, because Mm -hmm. one of your biggest issues to new people and students is cost. But if you've got the equipment, you'll take advantage of it. And the positive part is whenever they finish and they leave, they will have that experience behind them. And it's possible somewhere down the road, they'll pick it back up again. Yeah. Uh, I like that photo they have that leads it off. A nice, large uh, pool facility. And did you notice how much protection they've got on the tile of the pool? They've got that thing wrapped. Oh, absolutely. And I, a lot of places, again, won't let you take a tank if you don't have a boot on it. Yeah. I'm trying to see. It's hard to tell if those tanks got boots. but I, I couldn't tell either. I was looking. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. I'm glad to see them there. Uh, I'm not thinking they've been doing this too long. If a college student, at least it appeared to be a college student, was one of the founding members, because that's the thing with anything in these education, not including grad school, it's four years and they're out. So this is uh, pretty good that it's gone from such a small group to 53 members in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. And then the British Navy detonates a German World War II bomb retrieved from a 17th century shipwreck. Uh, the British Royal Navy divers detonated a, at sea a huge one-ton Germany dropped bomb that Germany dropped during World War II. The detonation took place Friday off Essex at the end of a delicate six-day mission, officials said. The German parachute ground mine was one of the biggest bombs used by the Luftwaffe during the war. I always want to add an L to the end, Luftwaffe. Uh, the mine most likely dropped on a target of one of the numerous docks at the Thames estuary was extremely good condition, condition given its age, Lieutenant Ben Brown said in a news release. Civilian divers exploring the London, a 17th century shipwreck, found the bomb and alerted the Royal Navy. The London sank in 1665. The complexity of this task should not be underestimated. Dealing with one of the largest pieces of German Second World War ordnance in the Thames estuary presents some of the most challenging diving conditions 
there are to work in. He added, with nil visibility underwater and significant tidal flows, the diving window is extremely limited and all work in the ordnance must be done by touch. The mine was packed with the equivalent of 1,600 pounds of TNT. It was detonated about five miles from where it was found. That's a healthy plume, too, when it went off. Well, when I I'm, I'm questioning how, if it's been there since 1665 and civilian divers found it, exploring it. Uh-huh. It didn't say when they found it. I was curious about that. Yeah, they didn't. Like, they discovered it. Maybe it was something that everybody knew about but just didn't realize there was a bomb on it. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're diving Braille or very low vis, you're going to say that. Is that a funny-looking boiler? Well, at the point when you're touching it and then you realize that it's a bomb, is it kind of like the shark kayak attack where there, you know, it's like there's an excretion that happens? Well, if you got a wetsuit on, you just get warm for a moment. <laughs> I like but, the, I like the the chat room the chat comments that said uh, somebody said time travel. Yeah, it says a 17th century ship hit a German World War II mine and sunk. I ain't gonna read this again. <laughs> and then we've got archaeologists are to resume survey the famous Antikythera shipwreck and i think i pronounced that one right this time i was gonna say that's outstanding i did just said greek (laughs) yeah the 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 a wreck uh the underwater survey which began has been suspended since 2017 will resume in the near future according to announcement made by oh goodness (laughs) this is my my reward uh ikataniri lascarati institute on friday the institution is responsible for supplying the research vessel Typhoon for the needs of the important maritime archaeological research project. The aim of the archaeological survey will start the next few days in recovery of antiquities to update the mapping of the archaeological site and elevate, of elevate, evaluate the conditions of the shipwreck after two years. Longtime director of the survey, uh, Dr. Uh, Samosi, head of the Bowen Antiquities Efferet, will once again lead the mission, which includes a team of exceptional Greek scientists from various disciplines. And at work, when we use that language, they call that a junket. Uh, the specialists involved in the fascinating project include maritime archaeologists, scuba divers, cameramen, a team of four deep-sea divers in the Greek Coast Guard Underwater Missions Unit. The research vessel Typhoon adds a new dimension to survey project since in addition to its size. It can also remain in a fixed location above any point on the seabed, which enables divers to use as a stable base for dives over the exact location of the shipwreck. The mission is once again supported by watchmaker Hobloy of the island and the island municipality of Kathira. Studies in the Antikythera archaeological site involve a Roman area shipwreck, which dates back to the second quarter of the first century BC. It was discovered by sponge divers off the shore of the Greek island of Antikythera in the year of 1900. And as we've talked about before there, you know, I think Jacques Cousteau visited the site and uh, that's where that device, which was uh, kind of like a ancient computer really uh, was found. It looks quite interesting and lots of artifacts. Yes. And I'm looking at the pictorial they had there. It makes you wonder, is that a statue's arm or is that a prosthetic? Oh, 
I'm going to guess it's a statue. That would be my, my guess. Looking at the stuff in the background? Yeah. And why was yeah, it I'm suspended? Saying, and why was it suspended right? in 2017 until now, meaning the search? Didn't say that, um, did they? I'm trying to remember. I, I'm thinking just funding, probably. Yeah. Did you see the pictures I posted? Okay. Yes, those are beautiful photos. Uh, where where those come from? From that article, different place. Oh. But my point, I suppose, is okay. that's supposed to be sponge divers, which is generally not really, really deep. But uh, take a look at the rigs that one that one group is wearing, because it looks like rig breathers with gas bottles as their bailouts. I want to say that it was over ninety feet deep, because sponge divers. It was like at the I think the reason they were they were that deep, if I remember the story correctly, is that they it was getting harder and harder to find sponges at the shallower depths. Yeah. So they were they they had been moving in the deeper, and that's when they found it. Uh, and and the, I would say that color it could be that would that would that could be at least a hundred feet deep there. And even though that's still recreational distance with a rebreather, that has to give you a lot more bottom time. Oh, 45 meters. 45 meters. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's a little that's a little ways down there. Yeah. Very cool. I would I would you know, I called it a junket earlier, but I would love to to be on that junket. Oh yeah, I mean both. I, I can't think of a diver that wouldn't. Yeah, and then even this next one I wouldn't mind being on. 19th century shipwreck suddenly turning up gold coins off South Carolina coast. The 180-year-old shipwreck popular scuba divers is proving to be a trove of rare coins and artifacts for a salvage project launched 20 miles off the South Carolina coast. To divers known as the Copper Pot, the wreck is actually a steamship North Carolina, which collided with another boat in 1840 with hundreds of gold coins stuffed in the passenger steamer trunks. The first of the newly found coins, several $5 gold pieces dating from the mid-1830s, were brought up late September along with 19th century dinnerware and marble. This is according to the Blue Water Ventures International based in Florida. I can't believe what we're finding, uh, said Keith Webb, president of Blue Water Ventures. The coins look almost as if they were just minted and that's blowing our minds. It's because they were hidden by a large piece of copper and were not moved around by the sand in the currents. So that is... Uh, uh, that's what all the coin collectors don't want to have happened if you already own a coin because this just drives the the value down of everything that's not mint like these shipwrecks. Absolutely. Then the interesting part was this was the one that was actually salvaged. Oh, An outfit okay. called Marlex. Remember, they took $700,000 worth of coins in the late 1990s. Ah. <clears throat> and then they stopped because it was getting harder to find the coins. Well, what we have here is probably the the remnants, but I take up right. I take a couple of those remnants, right? And that's what well, sixty five feet. For, yeah, for for a mass operation, it probably uh, it doesn't justify the cost of the gas and the platform and everything else. But uh, you know, if you're just finding a few at a time, it would certainly uh, be worth it. And you have to wonder that somebody goofed up and then kind of leaked out, hey, we're still finding some. Because if this is popular with recreational divers, you think of how many just haven't been reported. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, 19 miles offshore, you want a real good weather day. Mm -hmm. And that's what, 
It's about 19 miles offshore, boiler shaft hull still intact beneath 80 foot of water. And now uh, yes. one of the other aspects talked about a lot of the coins are up to five feet down. They've been settled into huh. the sand. Yeah. Because I was thinking that just with the operations before that, you know, say they had done some holes or trenches that the wave action had worked some of them up and uh, visible. But Well, looking at the bottom, hmm. there's a lot of sand and whatever. I'd have been using a dredge, sucking the sand, blowing the backside of it into a screen box. That's oh, yeah. how I would have done it. And I, I imagine I'd go back down there and try that now. <laughs> Those coins are out. They, they would fit really nice up right under your glove sleeve. If uh-huh. you found one, I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but you just, uh, I, I really, officer, I brought that with me. I always go how, diving with a couple how of my, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have a quick little item. You can put it on your chain or on your neck. Just yeah. fits on it real quick. How well, much did they say the individual coin was worth? Uh, was it 15,000? I'm trying to scroll. Well, I, yeah, one of them was. Oh, no. One passenger claimed you lost 15,000 in the incident. Oh, okay. Does it say, though? Uh, well, you're talking minimum a couple of thousand per coin. You figure the yeah. bullion value at least twelve, thirteen hundred if it's an ounce. Uh, the numistic value will kick it up. But if you mm-hmm. did melt it, nobody would know it was a coin, and you've just got gold. So, yeah. Fire can be your friend. <laughs> I'm just barbecuing, really. No, I'm making. No. I'm melting lead weights in my lead cast. Weights. Yeah, just very shiny lead weights. Yeah, yeah. So, so what is the? Oh gosh, I hate to even say this, but if you're going to do this the right way, and you're out in Iraq, and you see a gold coin like that, yeah, you know you can't leave it because the next guy's going to take it. So you got to take it. But when Absolutely. you go in, this is owned by, I mean, somebody owns the salvage right to this wreck. So do you have to give it to them? I'm sorry. Say, I don't know well, what I, you're talking about. I never found I a damn thing. It's only an issue if you open your mouth. <laughs> and you don't cut your buddy's uh, air hoses. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, probably probably better not to have this hypothetical question. True, because uh, then if you happen to be on one, you're going to get scrutinized pretty good. Yeah, and then the, the I'll next just dive. I'll is, just dive with you, and they'll say, "Check the old guy first. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, and the next article is is the really covering the same thing, but with some different photos. So uh, worth taking a look there as well. Well, I sure do like the visibility they got. Uh, the gold coins? Well, I'm looking at a, at the secondary one, the video of them working around it. Uh, I would definitely have a metal detector yeah. out there, buddy. Oh, that's even better collection. Yeah. You're talking about the, the stuff. Here's a collection mm-hmm. from another site. See it? I put it on the cast. Okay, I'll take a peek. With, oh, yeah, I saw that. That was, that was beautiful. Okay, this is the right guy here. Uh-oh. Now what are you showing? Well, one, it looks like he's got a surface air hose. You see it? And I'm trying to determine <laughs> oh, if, that's yeah, a, yeah. if that's some type of detector device he's got as he's going around the bottom. No, I think what that is, that looks like a uh, 
Looks like he's got a slate and then a uh, a tape measure, like what Jim. That's a very down. thick. That's a very thick. Sl- okay, now that I'm looking sideways at it, actually, you're right. That could yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that off the top, for some reason, I'm not thinking that's a surface supply hose. I think that's just a uh, like a strap floating for whatever reason, because he looks like he's got a yoke tank. Yeah. 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 Pretty coin, Joe. Yeah. Underwater marine archaeologist James Sinclair examining the SB North Carolina site. Yeah. I, I would. I'd like to find some gold and not spray painted bricks. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. Confederate gold or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not picky. Confederate Union, whichever side, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, stunning cargo discovered on a well-preserved Roman shipwreck. Now, look at those photos. Those are some amazing ones. Archaeologists have discovered a horde of Roman jars in the ancient shipwreck off Spanish islands of, is that Mallorca? M-A-L-L-O-R-C-A. In a statement, the Council of Mallorca said that 93 amphorae, uh, those are the ancient jars, have been retrieved from the wreck near Palma, the island's capital. The news conference last week, officials explained the wreck was found earlier this summer. The department's priority has been protecting the wreck and recovering the amphora. Said uh, Kika Colo, Cole, Kika Cole, council minister. The ship, which dates to sometime in the middle, late 3rd century AD, is believed to have been traveling from the Iberian Peninsula to Rome when it sank. It had been loaded with oil, wine, fresh sauces, according to the council. Now they're making me hungry. Experts said well-preserved wreck is unlikely to have gone down in a violent storm. Indeed, a number of theories have arisen about the ship's demise, including the possibility it may have sunk as a result of a leak or unrest among the crew. Other Roman-era shipwrecks have grabbed attention recently. Researchers, for example, claim to have identified the anchor of St. Paul's wreck in the island of Malta. Earlier this year, archaeologists discovered the wreck of an undisturbed undisturbed Roman-era ship off the east coast of Cyprus. In 2017, archaeologists in Egypt discovered three Roman-era shipwrecks and other stunning artifacts on the floor of Mediterranean off the coast of Alexandria. Climate change researchers working in the black community recently made a discovery of their own 60 shipwrecks dating back 2,500 years, including vessels from the Roman and Byzantine eras. They're just dropping all sorts of photos in this article. That ship looks pretty clean. Well, just the informa, you- I mean... You- just You've got, out. you know, the, you can see the boards. Then it looks like there's a wall, sand, and the materials in it. So I'm yeah. just curious how that was happened. I had heard in some cargoes, they actually put sand, put the cargo around, and filled it up with sand because they were using it as ballast. And they ah. also did that because it protected the, the the ceramics, the bottles, and the, and the cask that they had. Well, I don't if know you if that run- was common or not. But if you had rough sea and they were kind of all embedded in the sand, it wouldn't they wouldn't bump into each other and break. True. It's kind of like it's kind of like uh, old version of packing peanuts. Yep. So is that very bottom photo like after they took everything out? That's what I was trying to figure out. But there's a wall there. It looks like then it's still sand and the the jugs and stuff behind it. So I was wondering, did they suck that first section out to clean it out? I think they did, because if you look, you can just kind of see, peeking behind the walls, sandbags. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I'm saying. And this is clean, too. There's no yeah. vegetation and no uh, yeah. shells or anything. 
So I think they did is they probably set up a grid and worked their way from, uh, it looks like the bow of the boat. And then they made it to this bulkhead. And then just to keep it from collapsing under the sand from the other side, they uh, reinforced it with sandbags and then they'll work on the next section. So uh, still some beautiful photos. Oh, yeah, they did a nice job. Yeah, very cool. And I think that does it for Scuba the News this week. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we did have some people get out and do some diving. I understand. Uh, I mean, last week, apologize for everybody. We, we didn't have a show. I was traveling with my son to his uh, new intern job. Uh, he is working at uh, Textron, which is the owner of uh, Cessna Beechcraft and Hawker. So he's going to be doing engineering on interiors for his internship. So I was trying to ask him to be an interior designer, but he didn't. He wasn't thinking that was too funny. Uh, but uh, I understand that Kevin and Amy got out this week uh, and pulled up the buoy from the Havana. They had, had a uh, had heard that the buoy was missing, so they did a late uh, evening dive just to check it out. And found the buoy was there, but while they were there, they decided it was time to to pull it off. We're hitting the end of October here, and you know you better to have everything off in November because you don't you, your next time out there may be May. Yeah, it's called Gales in November for a reason. Yeah. So, uh, but it looked like they had a great dive, and it was good. And to the see pictures the are pretty nice. Uh, I thought it was interesting that you had no thermocline all the way down. They said visibility was only ten-ish feet. Uh, but some of the pictures are pretty nice. And they got it out. Uh, we had gone over it. Uh, I was flying over it the other day just to see if you could find it. At nighttime, easy to find because they got the strobe. At the daytime, it's a little harder to find from flying. Yeah, right. It's not a big contrasty buoy from the air, I wouldn't imagine. But uh, I'm glad to see that that beacon was flashing and you could see it. Because if you could see yeah. it from a plane, then that means a, a boat would be able to see it as well. Yep. And uh, I think the West Michigan Preserve have been out. They've got most of their buoys in also. There's some articles on that. And I think Jim was going out tonight, uh, is trying to find a couple more bodies to get uh, the buoys off of Tuscornia Beach, you know, the swimming buoys. I think those are the ones they were going to try to recover. Yeah, he usually does those, and he also helps with the uh... – some of the racing ones, the tri, tri-state regatta buoys, I think. Something. Right. I've been out there with him on a few of those. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those items. They usually provide crew. You provide the, the lift bag and the knowledge to get them up on the surface. Yeah. Um, it's good for them and it gets you a chance to get into the water. Yeah. So I think we've got buoy on the rockway. That should be coming off pretty soon. And then that pretty much wraps up yes. the active diving season for Lake Michigan. Right. I put on the newsletter today also that the buoy for Cook Plant still out. I spotted that. We circled that out when we were looking. And then I double-checked them. The buoy right now is still on place for uh, South Haven and Cook Plant. The one okay. in Michigan City is gone or is not transmitting. So they will be coming out. If they already aren't, they will soon be. Yeah, it could, they could be on their way right now because it's that time yeah. of year where you've got limited number of days to get it all in. But I, I mean, I really like having that because it gives you a real good idea of what you're going to be in for. Plus, back 
and I don't think it went as deep this year, but you know, in years past, no. it would go down 50 feet. So you could see where the thermocline was and how much it was. Meaning if you got an upwelling, can I go by wet too? Or do I got to go dry? It was really nice. Yeah. And, and it's kind of cool. If you got used to reading the buoy and then going out and diving the conditions, it didn't take too many times for you to be able to correlate what that buoy was telling you and what you were seeing. And there is yeah, a little yeah. bit, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, they, they moved the buoy from where it used to be. Uh, it was straight out from the cook plant this time. And it okay. was a little, it was in deeper water. Yeah. Well, I think they've been, I, I think they kind of do that intentionally. You know, they, they look at wherever we had it the year before, we know what that is. Because they're really trying to make that map of uh, the water temperature out there to help them justify any changes or improvements they need to do to the cooling intake that they proposed. Well, we used to have thermocouples at different areas, mm -hmm. and I don't know if they still do, because we did, we monitored uh, the subsurface temperatures to make sure we were not, not putting out too hot of a water. And we do do it on the intake and the discharge, but by the time she gets out and does the swirl pattern, you know, it, it'll cool it down pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do we know of anybody doing any diving this weekend? I no, I don't have anything planned myself. Yeah. Uh, how's the river been? Has that been uh, taming down at all, or is that still swift? I have not checked Niles for a while. The visibility and the pawpaw is really decent, meaning probably six, seven feet. But once you touch the bottom on the shoreline, it went away. And the current, <laughs> it, the current is not really fast there. Because it sort of deadheads into the uh, right. St. Joe, into the ship canal, and that buffers it. So it just kind of hangs. That yeah, and if you're in the if you're in the canal, forget it. When you when you kick it, it's there for a long time. Yeah. Now, uh, kind of a squirrel moment. Have you heard anything more with the canal? Are the, are they? I heard some talks here wanted to bring that back. Oh, it's been it's been actually brought up twice, uh, probably 10 years apart. Uh, the last time was more serious because they actually did something I was curious about is, uh, you know where it ends at now, right? Yeah. You, know, you go right across the road, and now you got a ditch on the other side. Well, that goes all the way back to, uh, I think it's 4th Street and, uh, no, 6th Street, back to the turning basin. And they actually did core borings in the ditch all the way down to they got to the pavement aspect. And they were looking to find out was there any metals, chemicals, that if they did dig it out, what kind of hazard were they going to create or not a hazard, but where are they going to put it? Yeah, what are they going to have to deal with? Are we just talking with uh, silt and sediment or do we've got, uh, you know, old uh, car batteries and, uh, you know, electric chemicals? Yeah, the interesting part is, I won't go into too much of it because it's conflicting, but if you want to look at what benefit that Harbor Shores provide for Benton Harbor, it ain't a lot because if you look at where the St. Joe is versus Benton Harbor, if you go down the middle of Ship Canal, turn left where it stops, go down to Graham Street, turn left, all of that is actually St. Joe. That's not Benton Harbor. Right. Right. Well, that, that's the, the only, thing is that Benton Harbor 
St. Joe's on both sides of the river there. Yeah, yeah, it is. Most people don't realize that. Yeah. Because you get in Jean Clock, that's Benton Harbor, Discornia Beaches, St. Joe. And if you follow the the river, everything on the left side of that river going north is St. Joe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I... I mean, I've kind of been in favor. I had a conflicting interest only because uh, my boss at the time was one of the guys who ran the project to put that in. Uh, but I think anytime you, you improve an area, it's going to expand beyond that. Because for people who don't understand the, the history of Benton Harbor, it, it had been so depressed for so long. Um, they'd done. It still is. Yeah. You know, and it, but it's trying to come back. But I'd seen it try to come back several times. It seemed like every ten years, there'd be a you know they'd do some new paving, they do new sidewalks, they'd throw a few businesses in, and then three years later, the businesses they have to give up because they just can't convince enough people to come down there and patronize them. So, uh, hopefully, this helps. I think I think the golf course does eventually. And if you look at who owns those places, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Part of it is Whirlpool, which is rightly so, because that's what they do. They invest. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the individual owners, most of the people who own that property all the way down to the turning basin Uh don't necessarily live in Benton Harbor. And that's a fact. Oh, yes. They're owned by other people. And they're, they're the ones who are going to benefit when that does. And it will get dug out again, and they will put that harbor back in. Yeah, if they if they dig that out and you make it like a, a river walk with some dining and other entertainment activities, uh, it will do well. Just people if have you, to be com- comfortable enough. Now, if you look at the planning that Andrews University did and over that whole area, because you're talking about they got rid of the uh, the commercial docks, they've been wanting to get rid of those for a long time. Because when you look at the inn and look out, what do you see? You see the commercial dock and sand piles. They yeah. wanted to move that. They wanted to move it over to Whirlpool Basin, where we used to dive. Yeah. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. You want want to make a pristine picture. Yeah. But, you know, the people who are putting tax money and and employment in all these years, when nobody wanted to be there, then you just kind of kick them out. Yeah. That's what they're doing. Wow. He ended that in a positive note. (laughs) <laughs> do you have a dive safety story this week well actually it's going to be this is interesting um i think so it's called how hospital protocol and a boat crew nearly kill divers rigorously following any computer decompression algorithm isn't any guarantee that you will not get bent the most important thing to realize is the symptoms of decompression sickness no matter how minor identify it realize it, and get treatment. Now, the two stories I'm going to talk about show dive professionals aren't always ensuring that you get to a chamber in an expeditious fashion. And this goes in, it was called, Why Diving in Ontario Could Be Dangerous. And what we're talking about is Torbomori, by the way, Phantom 5 National Park. What would you think if your spouse, suffering from the bends, was put into an ambulance, and then driven past the nearest hyperbaric facility. That's what happened to David Phelps from Detroit and his wife, Denise, who nearly died in 2016 from DCS after a freshwater dive at Phantom 5 National Marine Park in Tobamori, Ontario. 
Their mini vacation ended in disaster, which might have been mitigated had circumstances and hospital treatment protocol been different. Denise had logged about 150 dives when she and her and David went for a wreck dive in Georgian Bay. They'd been underwater only about 10 minutes at 33 feet when she suddenly and urgently signaled David she had to go up. She shot past him. He also went up, found her unconscious on the surface. Once Phelps was recovered from the water, David drove the car behind the ambulance carrying her. George, the medic in charge of Tobamori's hyperbaric chamber, was alerted and waiting at the door. But the ambulance drove straight on by. Their protocol for treating injured divers had recently changed, and it was now necessary to triage them first at a hospital at Lion's Head, 30 miles away. Since time is of the essence when treating DCS, her injuries could worsen or even become untreatable. As the ambulance passed him by, the gentleman called the paramedics and eventually persuaded them to turn around, but it took them an extra 40 minutes to get back to the ER that had the hyperbaric chamber. By now, Phelps was unresponsive and had to be recompressed for many hours before being transferred to Toronto. Her injuries included a rupture of both lungs and five arterial gas embolisms, and she had gone into a full cardiac arrest. Every summer, thousands of divers arrive at Tobermory to explore its 20 shipwrecks. Since Phelps' case, three more serious diving accidents have occurred there, and in each case, they spent critical time persuading medics to go to the hyperbaric center rather than to the hospital at Lion's Head. Every minute counts, he says. If you cut off the blood supply to the brain, brain cells start dying within seconds. Now, the owner of Diver's Den, the sole dive center at Tobamori, says it's nerve-wracking for us to think a diver may not be allowed to go to the hyperbaric chamber when given to be given the best care possible. The protocols that we have in place with the Coast Guard and with the doctor there are not being considered by the ambulance services. Now, the gentleman who run the chamber since 1970 says neither the Canadian government, Alliance Head Hospital staff, nor medical uh, emergency medical services have been able to give him a good reason for this change in protocol. After several months of intensive therapy, Denise Phillips learned to walk and talk again, but even today still has issues with short-term memory and remembers nothing of the accident at Tobamori. Now, as a side note, I wrote to the uh, news person who covered this article, and I was trying to do a follow-up since it's been over two years, to say, did they change the rules? And I'm very curious to find out what they're going to tell us. Yeah, ho- hopefully they would be able to get back to us and yeah. let us know. Everybody claimed that they don't know why they changed it, but it must have been for a good reason, but they can't tell anybody what the reason was. Well, the reason is save money. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but <clears throat> that seemed to be part of the as- aspect. Well, save money, and they probably have determined that a certain percentage really didn't need that extra treatment, or it was, you know, they just thought they had the bends, and really they had a hangover or something. Right. There's actually a new protocol in some hospitals that have changed it from when you go in, when it, they think you may have had a stroke or a heart attack or something, you're you're in there on the bed. The doc is doing a uh, an evaluation right now. You know, at two minutes, he can do an initial patient survey. Can save a lot of time. 
Right. A lot of places are now requiring you to talk to the nurse who then orders the blood test and stuff, which appears to be good, but in a, a true emergency, it wastes time. And the advantage of doing it the other way is, unfortunately, uh, they make more money when they do it the other way because they're getting blood tests, blah, 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 even before yeah. the doctor looks at you. So yeah. there's there's a money aspect that's been mentioned that makes yeah. it an issue. Well, they, they got more tests. And then also the doctor is able to see more <clears throat> patients if he doesn't have to try and figure out what you got. If he has all these tests, he just analyzes them and says, oh, yeah, based on this, this, and this, here's what you've got. Uh, but if he if he has to like look at your condition and send you away for a test and come back and look again, uh, they're just they're just trying to control costs. But yeah, it's not am, always to your benefit. No, I am optimistic that uh, somebody will come up with a better way because really, in the end, you can't convince me that it's cheaper for the medical for you to be a vegetable and be in long term care as it would have been to pay just a little bit of uh, a little bit extra earlier on. Yeah, well, you're the one paying for the extra. They're not. All right, the second article is when you're bent, but the dive guide says you're not. If you were feeling strange after a dive, you would think your liveaboard crew will show at least a little concern, right? Now, I'm going to use the name here in the article because that's what they did. But, well, not on the Palu aggressor. John Cody, an Englishman in his mid-30s who works in Saudi Arabia, took a trip aboard the boat in... 2018. Immediately after the dive at Blue Corner, Cody felt a growing sensation of pins and needles all over his body. He wondered if he was suffering decompression sickness, but the crew insisted his accent had not been abnormal, his speech was good, and because he had no sign of a skin rash, he was obviously not bent. Cody thought otherwise, but didn't press the point and continued with the diving. He flew back to Jeddah, the home base in Saudi Arabia, noticing he felt worse at altitude and better each time he landed to make the inter, you know international connections along the way. However, by the time he arrived at Jeddah, Cody was in dire straits and needed hyperbaric treatment and a recompression chamber in an expeditious manner. A subsequent clinical investigation discovered he had a massive hole in his heart called patient foramen oval or a PFO, which occurs in approximately 25% of the population and is a contributor to the bends. Cody thinks the effort of battling the current at Blue Corner plus the excitement of seeing the sharks there raised his heart rate to such a level that he suffered a shunt of blood from his venous system to his arterial and with it gas in solution that should have normally been evacuated through his lungs. He has since recovered from both the DCS and the heart surgery, and is cautiously considering returning to diving. But a story should have had a different ending. The aggressor crew preferred to assume he was not suffering from DCS rather than get him to immediate treatment. Moreover, the aggressor fleet got him to sign a document waiver that he did not hold them responsible for any injury he may have occurred even after he complained. Case of the dollar taking precedence over the well-being of a customer? I don't know. Remember Cody's case? If you're not, if you're feeling not too great after a dive, and you press the crew to get you some treatment, do so. Especially if you think it's DCS related in any way. 
Denial is a common symptom of compression, decompression illness. It's usually done by those suffering the symptoms because nobody wants to believe they've got an ongoing DCI event. I couldn't have done that. I wasn't down that long. I breathed all the way up. Bottom line, however, if you believe you have suffered a decompression injury and found out those around you didn't believe you, what would you do? And that's the question. If you think you do and nobody believes you, what are you going to do? Think about it before it happens. Right. Be be prepared. If you think you've got something, you have to, I mean, they may think you're nuts. They may fight you, but you got to stand up for yourself. So that, that's one thing that I always respected my grandparents for is that they had learned kind of the hard way that uh, you don't always get the best care unless somebody's advocating for you. So if my, if one of them was in the hospital, the other one was there in the chair right next to them. And uh, unfortunately, a few times they had to get pushy because things weren't happening. And as the patient, you know, they've got you doped up on medication and doing other things and you know, you can't get out of the bed, so you need somebody to be able to, to make sure. So that that sounds like something that you would talk it over with your spouse. You know, if, if I'm in there and I say I've got DCS and they say no, you need to fight to get me get get me that sort of treatment. Man, you be you need to be in the Trindlebeg position on O2 while somebody's boogieing you, you know, to where you need to be going. Yeah. Yeah, Derek in the chat room and uh, was saying, uh, if you think you got the bends, go to the chamber, ring Dan and bypass the people not listening to you. And that's a real big thing about carrying that Dan card. When you think that is and you get to where you're going, let them have that card because they don't know from dirt. And they will call Dan. Dan will help you out. And they're going to be proactive on your side. Yeah, because yeah, you're covered. I mean, that's what you're paying for it for. Is you've covered. So if there's any question of who's paying for it, who's covering it, you know, they don't have to look at your whatever co- normal health coverage you've got. Dan's picking up the bills. One of the well, best like, deals out there. Oh, absolutely. And I've got that. I mean, I'm not going on trips, but I feel much more comfortable with it. And I know one of our members of the club from a couple, several years ago had uh-huh. a major, you know who I'm talking about, I major do. event. And that Dan made one hell of a difference in how much it cost made, made a big, big difference. Yeah. But again, you can't horse around if you think you got it, but that denial, it gets you into trouble. Same thing for men, heart attack. Yeah. Well, it's not really. And again, women have a different, have different symptoms than men do. And most men won't have a clue what those are. And again, how many women do? Yeah, yeah. Karen's even talking in the chat room saying that uh, when she called Dan, they helped her out when she was in Hawaii. So oh. it's certainly worth it when you're traveling because there's so many variables that you're not used to. You know, we talk about when you're when you're diving, you know, keeping one variable, but you've already got several variables against you when you travel. You've got did you fly to get there? What are you eating? You're not sleeping in your own bed. There's all these different conditions, and just having that advocate for you understands. Diving, the diving conditions is valuable. Yeah. But I thought those articles were good, and I'm really curious what the lady will hopefully come back and let us know what change on that protocol, especially if it comes from the diving industry. You know, go to the chamber place first, people. And I'm hopefully, hopefully they will have said that. Yeah. But how many people knew that? 
No, I I hadn't heard that story. And that one had happened quite a while ago. That'd be because uh, we've we've talked about it. it's been a, several years since we did, and we probably need to do it more often. But if you're traveling somewhere, you get an idea where the dive chambers are. If you didn't know that dive chamber was there, you wouldn't be in a position to even argue with the ambulance. You think they're taking you to where the dive chamber? Yeah. I mean, after all, you've given them the conditions of DCS. Yep. And even if you went to a place that doesn't have it, a lot of them have the uh, almost not quite a one atmosphere, but even being able to be pressed down on oxygen to 20 feet is a lot better than being on the surface. A lot of, you know, the one lungers mm-hmm. they have for treating uh, gangrene and uh, monoxide poisoning. They put you in a mono lung. Yeah, there are several of those around here, and push come to shove, that's a lot better than nothing. Oh, certainly. I mean, you're you're seeing those a lot for, uh, you know, like you said, the carbon monoxide poisoning, and and they're a lot less expensive to run than a full full blown chamber like we have up in California. Yes, you put them in because they're it's it's basically plastic, twenty pounds, and again, twenty pounds on O2 is a lot better than surface. Yeah, Karen's uh, saying wound care. Yep. Yep. Oh, well, hopefully everybody's enjoying the show. Uh, we certainly appreciate your support. And if you could and you're able, we certainly would love for you to join our Patreon crew. Head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon link, and $3 or more will get you early access to the show notes so you can follow along as we're recording. Uh, we have picked up a few more Patreon supporters, which is great this time of year as we head to the time of the season where we have to renew some of our hosting and maintenance agreements. Uh, so we thank you for that. Everybody who's uh, been longtime supporters have been going through, and Patreon lets me know. And we've had some people who have been Patreons for almost since the beginning when we started offering that. And, and that's what enables this all to happen. Uh, I don't know if I would be able to have pocketed the expense all this amount of time if it wasn't for you guys. So thank you. And and we enjoyed that you're listening. We get, um, I think we do better than most, but usually the rule of thumb is for every 1000 listeners, you have one supporter who actually supports us through Patreon. So, uh, if you can, uh, donate a little bit of money. And if you can't, then how about a five-star review on whatever site or place you're listening to the program? If you'd like to follow along, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash Obsessed. We're on Twitter at Obsessed. You have some feedback you'd like to give for us, the show at scubobsessed.com, and that will get to us and we'll comment. So, I personally would like to see a lot more comments about what you do like, what you don't like, what we can improve on, and what do you want to hear about. Yeah, certainly. I agree. Because we're, we're we're kind of throwing it in the wind here, and we've been doing that for going on ten years now. So, yeah. Ho- hopefully, everybody's liking, but we'd we'd love to make it better. Kara was asking, we're going to talk about Taurus. Uh, didn't we? Did we talk about him last time? Uh well, I know that we had a um, good representation of the dive club and a lot of other people at the uh, Benton Harbor. Airport when we had Taras Lacinko of ATANT uh, recovery, recovery on the uh, n- recovery of the Navy aircraft that was lost on Lake Michigan. Uh, a goodly number of them were lost on 
training exercises from 1942 through 1945 on the uh, two aircraft carriers we had in Lake Michigan. And I think they lost, for their record, 156 aircraft. And he's found a good little number of them. Yeah. And uh, I, I bought the book. And as somebody who works in the printing industry, even though we did not print it, that is a very nice quality book. Uh, nice photos in it, nice quality. And then the writing is, it's a type of writing. It's, it's that little stories on different topics. So you can pick it up. You don't, you don't have to sit down. It's not like a textbook. It's these little stories talking about different things that he's done. And it's certainly and, worth reading. And the bureaucratic hassle he's had to jump oh, through. Gosh. The number of hoops to do something that co- is common sense. And I, I did a little, I, re- I finished the book again. Then I went through and I started looking up some of these characters from the day. Because you're talking a span of 30 years. Yeah. And if you look up some of their histories, which I did, I won't say they're assholes, but if the shoe fits. So, so you're saying they were they were professional bureaucrats? Yes, they really were. Basically, it's called turf. Well, that's my stuff. I don't want to share it. Yeah. And for somebody to say, we should leave the aircraft down there so 100 years from now when somebody finds it, it'll be a really good find. Well, 100 years from now, it ain't going to be there. The Kraga on there, the secretions are creating or deteriorating the metal. Muscle poop. It's doing it in. Yeah, they're yeah. not going to be there. For, they're, they're not going to be in any better condition than they are today. Yeah. So, yeah, but uh, certainly it was a great interview. Any chance you get to listen to him, it's worth it. And I think you could listen to him at 10 different shows one right after another, and you get a different presentation each time. I like that. He, he does he vary it. Uh, he's done three since we had him at the airport. Um, and I think the last one was like Michigan College. But he was doing a little different. He was doing like a 50-minute presentation, mm-hmm. which is more of a snippet for him. Yeah. But uh, I yeah. did get a call from him, and I, and I told Karen, because Karen uh, gave him one of those nice pins she's been making. Yep. And he was just gog all over that damn pen because he called me the next day asking for some feedback. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he mentioned that pen multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a beautiful pen that she oh, made. Oh, man, that was Karen, great. Karen makes some great pens there. Uh, uh, she also mentioned that 12.30 p.m. at LMC on November 11th. Uh, he's going to be speaking. And then she said there's another one in Niles. Yep. Week. At the YMCA. Yeah. So he's been getting out. Is he bored? I mean, how all of a sudden is he doing all this? Or is, it because, is this the book tour? Uh, you have no clue what that man does. How he has time to come and do this amazes me. He yeah, is probably He's probably on five different committees of significance. How he can juggle all this, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, well, she just posted a picture. Oh, they're, oh, they're the pens. Yes, and go. they were awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mac, do you have anything you want to plug before we get on out of here? Oh, no, but we might talk about after we have the club meeting next Tuesday, if you get your newsletter, I put maybe some controversial items in there. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You're baiting me. I'm going to to take a look. (laughs) Uh, Boy, a Facebook group for the Mud Club has taken off. How many people are in there? 
500 and something. Actually, since we're talking and got nothing to do with nothing but diving, uh, one of the issues we have is if you look at the club, it's always the same people who show up, the same people who try to organize and run things. And it's it's sort of discouraging. We can't seem to get bigger, even though we don't have quite the – the weather, maybe visibility, colors, fish. But in doing in doing my review of how we could make this better for the club, I went and found out that in the last 20 years, and it's increasing in its rapidness, all the events like uh, social events as well as communities like Shriners, uh, Kwanis, American Veterans, Veterans of Foreign Wars, all of those organizations are shrinking past 10% per year. Yes. And the reason they're doing it is all the people are old. Yes. And as the older people are dying off, there is no younger people coming up to play. Yes. And I went through looking for histories, trying to figure out what the problem is. And we mentioned it. I mentioned it in the club newsletter. And actually the Facebook club site, is the medium of tomorrow. Yes. You still need a few people to do the the Facebook page. And if you get the participants who are diving and more people are doing it, telling us when they're diving, showing us the pictures, what they find, that's what you want. And then the second part is when do you get all these people you don't know together? It's when you have that ecology dive. When you do have that, let's clean up the beach because then it's something you have a vested interest in. It's a short duration. I can go it. Boom. I can talk about it. And it's done. You don't have any obligations. And it's going to be some food for thought to how to maybe change our club to make it more open to the electronic industry. And, you know, we'll find out where else maybe get some discussions at the club meeting. Yeah, because I, I was thinking the same thing is that maybe we need to, instead of just doing an ecology dive once a year, maybe we pick a weekend and say, hey, this is going to be a get-together weekend, and maybe it's a, a a dive site or maybe it's a it's a restaurant, you know, and, you know, so it's, I, I think younger people don't like the idea of going to something formal, but if you had something casual, I mean, maybe it's in a bar, maybe it's at a restaurant, a park. Well, part of the items that they talked about is, again, the younger people, what do they want to do? They want in and out. And the the, the ecology dive is one. Clean up the beaches is two. That's two if you did two of those a year. The second one, though, is every year they're looking for people to come out and help on the kayak trails of clean the trails out. Divers can do that as well yeah. as kayakers. And in fact, they're in better position because they can get wet. They can use the chainsaws. If you've got somebody in a boat or kayak to support you. Yeah. The reason I don't go out because I don't have a kayak. I don't blah, blah, blah. And this way I get somebody to take me out there. So then we cut the trees and we move them out of the way. And then you take me back. I don't have to swim upstream or downstream. Those yeah. are the kind of events that we might be able to, broaden horizon and get more people involved. Yeah. So, so maybe not so much of a focus of diving only. Correct. How can divers interface with uh, like the steelheaders, you know, the, the fishermen, the uh, ecology people. Yeah. What can we do to get in the water to help somebody else out? Yeah. So well, let's see where that takes us. Certainly. 
Well, I think we are getting to that time of the show. Are you ready? I'm shutting down. Okay. Brenda and Terry are going out for the evening. The last thing they have to do is put the cat out. The taxi arrives, and as a couple walks out the house, the cat scoots back in. Terry returns inside to chase it out. Brenda, not wanting it to be known the house would be empty, explains to the taxi driver, my husband is just going upstairs to say goodbye to my mother. Several minutes later, an exhausted Terry arrives, climbs in the back seat, and says, sorry it took me so long. That stupid idiot was hiding under the bed, and I had to poke her with a coat hanger several times before I could get her to come out. Okay. <laughs> See if I that's an the, Uber. I can hear the phone call now. Yeah, if that's an Uber, like you know, and you rate your Uber driver, can they rate you? Like these are terrible <laughs> people. So until next time, go out there and get wet and stay safe. If a shark bites my surfboard, at least I'd like more than two teeth. Yeah. Yeah, it should be even trade. And they ought to be Megadon teeth. (laughs) Megalodon. Oh, who's the pick? Oh, wait a minute. That's got to be your boy. Yeah. That looks like the the, uh, aircraft they're using. Yeah, that's a trainer. Does he get to play in it? Uh, No. No, that's not. He's, that's he. He does uh, interior engineering. Is what they've assigned him to. Oh, they must have a a Florida unit on that. Look behind his uh, right hand. See the ball turret. Yeah, they got some nice stuff on that. Nice yeah, avionic. That is a turbine too. Yeah, yeah. They said that what they do is they. That's what the uh, the first picture is the trainer. And they said that in the military, they said that is the plane that that's every pilot's first plane is right there. And they, they can dial it to have as close to jet characteristics as you can without actually being in a jet. Yeah, that's way out of my budget. Yeah, yeah. The, they didn't even tell us what the prices of these were because we, yeah. we, they, they're making like 20 different models of jets and planes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, those were. Yeah, they didn't. Most stuff they had uh, uh, prices on. Yeah. As soon as it, some of the stuff loads, I'll send it to you. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, they got hardware on that one too. Yeah, that one they've only made four of, and they were all right there. Uh, they're trying to sell it to the military, but they haven't bought it yet. Uh, I don't see a flurry unit on this one. No, that one's actually. Uh, they're trying to do like, like an attack plane. Yeah, I think what they're running into is that uh, drones are kind of Cheap, more in the, cheaper. Well, they're cheaper, and I think that they're just more in the, uh, just kind of what they're looking for. Well, if I was going to go on a mission and take something out, I'd use a drone, no pilot. Yeah, well, and they're having a hard time with pilots right now. I guess they can't. They're just short. They can't retain them. Yeah. 
Yeah. You get out and you get a good job in aviation. Yeah. Yeah. My son's talking about, cause they, they'll, uh, they'll help him get his, uh, pilot's license. Oh, sure they will. <laughs> and then, sure uh, and then he can get a, uh, they, they have uh chates for employees for, I guess they got a fleet of planes that they use for training. Yeah. And, uh, that, that bottom plane that they've got, uh, just kind of sitting there behind the tape. Mm-hmm. That one is like only like 18 million. Uh, drop in the bucket. <laughs> drop in the bucket. Yeah. yeah. That one was complete except for they were doing final touch up. There were some blemishes in the paint job that they were working on. That's why it was in this particular building. That's their paint building with a plane sitting. Uh-huh. And they said they normally paint and then put the interiors in, but this one, uh, it was caught after that point, but that was cool. We got to, uh, you can't really see it too well, but that one photo, it's at kind of at a distance, right? It had about seven or eight planes that you could actually walk into and see the insides. Right. That's a Cessna 525 Citation Jet M2, in case you're interested. Yeah, it was, it was cool. The reason Which I knew that, I, just, I looked up the t- the jet. I just looked up the tail number. Oh, you looked up the tail number? Yeah. yeah. It gives me all the details on it and where it's been flying. Oh, had that one been flying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, uh, a lot of them in that area hadn't been. Because some had tail numbers on, and when we asked the guys, they said, oh, these haven't. this one hasn't been birthed. They've got a guy, mm-hmm. that's all his job is, is associating the all the numbers and everything, giving it title. Interesting. But that that was a blast. We were there for about four hours just walking around seeing it. They had that one building. They had about 15 of that plane in the building. Mm-hmm. And each one was a different stage of construction. So at the beginning of the line, it was just kind of like the beginning of the uh, kind of, I call it the pressure vessel, just the tube. Yeah. And the end, all they got to do is put a prop on, and then they've got the all the mechanical parts done. Yeah. When he takes you know, pictures, try to get the tail numbers. <laughs> yeah. That way well, you look the thing is, you're te- we're technically weren't supposed to take photos. But this was about once every three or four years, they do a friends and family day. Yeah. And uh, my wife's sister works for them, and she was on the committee that helped organize this event. And she said, well, what about photos? They go, we're not going to stop anybody taking photos. But they did when you were walking through the production areas. They did yeah. have they did have extra signs saying, this area, no photos. Yeah. But they really didn't want anybody taking photos anywhere. But I only really took photos where, you know, none of this was secret stuff that I took photos of. You know, completed planes sitting out around that they fly. I, I think that's fair game. But very cool. Yeah. 